The other day, my family and I were sitting at the din- di- the, our dining room table. Is it really a dining room, babe? No, we have this little thing off the side of our kitchen. We sit at that table, and um, subsequently, we have three living rooms somehow. I think we're supposed to have a dining room. Either way, we're sitting at the table as a family eating a meal. That's the big point, right? You're like, three living rooms? We're paying that pastor too much. No, you're not. I'm just saying <laughs> it's not what it sounds like. We're sitting there, and we're talking about the English language and kind of like the exceptions to the rule. Do you know there's a lot of exceptions to the rule? Heather and I, we, our family, we were missionaries about a decade ago to the Philippines, and uh, learning another language makes you really understand that English is crazy. Uh, we joke that ESL, you know, people come to this country, they go to ESL classes, English as a second language. Uh, we joke that it's English as a stupid language. Can I say that? I'm sorry. Sorry, Mom. Uh, I know that's a bad word for my mother. Uh, so that's, that's how we joke. And, and so we talked about the exceptions. We talked about um, how things got their name. I wish I had it for me, but I would... Well, never mind. That's my fault. I didn't bring my, op- my object lesson up here. But one thing that did come up was the word extra. That's so extra. You know, extra, if you use it, what's the definition of extra? I looked it up. It's to a greater extent than usual. So you have crispy chicken and you have what? Extra crispy chicken. Right? But if you take that word and you smash it together and it becomes a prefix, it, it gives you a completely different meaning. So you have like extraordinary, not ordinary, beyond is the definition, outside of ordinary, extraterrestrial. So here's the deal. You take extra and ordinary, and you could have extra, you could have extraordinary or extraordinary, and it's like, wow, that is extraordinary. But if you do this, wow, that's extraordinary. That's like really, really ordinary. I don't know about you, but that really excites me. Because words matter. Words matter in how we see the world and then how we live in this world. And I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of words in the Bible. Very often, and it's pretty plain and simple. It's black and white, right? That's how we talk. The Bible's black and white. We understand God's word. But sometimes there's things that at first seem like they're self-contradicting. We call those things what? Paradoxes. Let me give you some examples. When I am weak, then I am strong. The weak is strong. The poor is rich. The last is first. And we're like, amen. Weak is strong. Poor is rich. Last is first. I'm amen in all these paradoxes, Jerome. All things, even the bad things, work together for good. Defeat leads to victory. And then death leads to life. Now, it's that last one. That we're kind of like, well, what, what, what do we mean by death leads to life? If it's Jesus' death leads to our life, then I'm amen in it. But if it's dying to self, then I just don't know. Because dying to self, to some, just sounds like pure religion, the following of the rules. It sounds very restricting. It sounds like a burden. It doesn't sound like life. To some, it doesn't sound like a paradox at all. It sounds like absolute foolishness. To die is to die, Jerome. It's totally losing. It doesn't sound like life at all. So why would Jesus, why would Scripture talk a number of places about death to life? Well, that's the passage we're going to look at today. There's a number of passages, but where we are in our study in the book of John brings us to John chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 12. 
And as you turn, let me give you a little bit of background. As you know, we uh, are studying this book of John. It's the, the fourth gospel written by one of Jesus', Jesus closest friends. And uh, he writes with a purpose that people would believe, know who Jesus is, and then they would have life in his name. This is his purpose statement in John chapter 20. But in John chapter 12, we find ourselves at a transitional chapter in the book of John. There's two major sections. The first section is about Jesus' life and ministry. It spans about three, three and a half years. We call it the book of signs because there's a number of signs he does. And then the last half, about a week, but it's still the half of the book, is what we call the book of glory. So we're in this transitional chapter that's, that's, that's moving to this next book. And we see uh, last week, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. It's, it's the Passover. Jerusalem is full of people, pilgrims who have come to worship during the Passover time. And, and Jesus rides into, he literally rides up into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey in the crowds, waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna. They are expecting a political savior who is someone who's going to kick the Romans out, someone who's going to bring about what they desire and what they're hoping, what they think Messiah means. But Jesus is about to disappoint them. See, last week he rode into Jerusalem to the acclaim of people and their expectations. And now, perhaps it's Sunday after he rides in, or maybe it's Monday, depending on the, how you do the, the timing of this week. The passage we're about to read, he disappoints them because he predicts his death. And I don't know about you, but military saviors aren't supposed to die. Political rescuers aren't supposed to die. But Jesus begins to talk about it right there. This very last moment with the public before he goes to the upper room with his disciples. But what's funny is while they were looking for a political savior, he, in dying, becomes a spiritual savior in dying, Jesus wins, not politically, but spiritually. If you have your Bibles, we are in John chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 20. We're going to go all the way through 50, but I'm not going to read it all at once or all, period. But we will start in verse 20. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethesda, Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. Because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Let's stop there real quick. So this passage starts off with, you know, Jesus rides in triumphantly. The Greeks are now looking for him. They go to Philip, who has a Greek name, that probably spoke Greek, and said, let's talk to this guy. We understand him. And now you're wondering, who are these Greeks? They're not necessarily Gentile converts, but they could simply be God-fearing Gentiles. We see that throughout Scripture, that there are those who, who feared the Lord and admired the Jews and their God. And so they, they have gathered themselves for Passover as well. There is a place in the temple called the, the, the Court of the Gentiles. There's a picture here. Or if you're on TV, there's a picture right in front of you right now. I've never, apparently, I've never been on live television before. Um, 
you can see this huge giant court on either side. Those, that's the court of the Gentiles. I mean, you think of the temple as like no Gentiles allowed. They were allowed. This is Herod's temple. You know, the temple was destroyed. It was rebuilt after the exile. This is all Old Testament background. And then Herod builds it up uh, or re, refurbishes. He has his own Vision 20 plan. Uh, and you can see this little line, this little wall, little screen that exists between this big open space and the center of that temple that was a, 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 a dividing wall between the Gentiles and the Jews. The Gentiles could not go beyond that. And there's even signs, and there's archaeological proof of this, the signs that exist. And it's not written in Hebrew. It's written in Greek. And it's in the language of those Gentiles who would be in that court saying, do not enter here on penalty of death. So when you read something like Ephesians 2.14, let me read Paul. This is, this is more of a nerdy fun fact. Listen up what Paul says when he talks about what Christ has done in Ephesians 2.14. For Christ himself has brought, us, brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. There was a wall that separated. In his mind, this imagery of the separation and what Christ has done. Fun fact, store that away for Bible trivia. The point is the Greeks come and they find Jesus or they come to, Pete, they come to Philip. They want to speak to Jesus. They want to see Jesus. And Philip looks at Andrew and says, well, let's go ask the guy because we know that Jesus has said some stuff about, I didn't come here. Uh, I came here for, the, for Israel. I came here. I mean, do you remember the Gentile lady who approached him and he said something about dogs? Like, whoa, Jesus. So they're like, let's go make sure Jesus wants to speak with these Gentiles. Somehow, some way, this request by the Gentiles triggers in Jesus that transition point that we've been anticipating and waiting for for this entire study. What does Jesus say? Now the time has come for the Son of Man. You may recall that way back in chapter 2 when Jesus' mother was like, hey, they've run out of wine. He's like, woman, my time hasn't come. Don't say that to your mom like that. But Jesus has said over and over, my time has not come. John has said it about Jesus. His time had not yet come. And here we have this transition point in this whole book. The time has come. And what he says in referring to his death and resurrection, what he says is it's entering into his glory. Now, notice he uses the imagery in, in this picture of kernels of wheat. If there's a kernel of wheat, it has to die in order for it to produce a harvest. And what is the harvest it produces? Look at it. A plentiful harvest of new lives, more new kernels. See, death in verse 24 is necessary for new life. Jesus is that kernel and his death produces new kernels. Kernels with a K, not kernels with a C. Just want to make sure if you're not looking at your Bible. In verse 25, once again, death is necessary for new life. Because this time it is the death of those new kernels themselves who follow him in death and find life. Listen to verse 25. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world We'll keep it for, for eternity. Some of your Bibles, depending on your translation, will say those who hate this life will find their life. This is the death that Jesus' followers die the moment they come to him. We are dead to our old life. We are alive to Christ. Remember those t-shirts we had a few weeks ago during baptism Sunday? Raised to new life. And we asked every baptism candidate, do they recognize that they have died to their old life and that they are alive in Christ 
This is what Paul was saying in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a death that comes with believing, really believing. Now, let me be clear here. Just when Jesus says stuff like, you have to hate your mother and father if you're going to follow me. When he says you have to hate this life or this world or you know, not love your life, he's not saying you can't enjoy the good things that God has blessed us with, blessed us with and given us. Uh, the other day, my wife and I rode down to downtown Indianapolis on our bikes on the Monon Trail. And as we were turning the corner downtown, I looked at her and I was like, I love our life. And I, I don't believe that disqualifies me from life in Christ. It was, it, was a, it was a, really it was a prayer of gratitude and thankfulness that the Lord brought us here to Radiant, to this season of, of life and ministry, man. Love it. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's, saying. he's not saying be miserable, hate yourself and hate your life. What he's saying is that God has to be above all else. See, we have a tendency to elevate ourselves above God, do we not? Or am I the only one? Idolatry is spiritual adultery, and we are our mistresses ourselves. Our idol in our idolatry is ourselves. Once again, maybe that's not you, but I kind of think that's true of humanity. This idea of cares nothing, once again, is, is that um, it's not a call to, to loathe oneself or abuse oneself, but you know, you, you who are created in God's image should love the person that God loves. That's a different sermon altogether. But it's the one who chooses not to be ruled by their self-interest. The one who doesn't live as the center of everything, who yields the throne of their heart to Jesus. That's what it means to die, to care nothing, to hate this life. As the colonel, Colonel Jesus, once again, K, as the colonel dies and brings life, so do the harvest of kernels also must follow his lead, die, and find life. It's the great paradox of, well, one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life, of the message of Jesus. Then we get to verse 27 through 36. I won't read that. Let me just kind of give you uh, a summary over it. Verse 27, Jesus talks, no, he's just talked about dying, right? They are expecting a political uh, revolution. They are expecting him to be the Messiah that's going to do anything but die. And he just talks about dying here. And then verse 27, the prospect of the cross, even for Jesus, is daunting. My soul is deeply troubled. Let me read verse 27. My soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray? Father, save me from this hour, but for this very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. So Jesus is troubled, which for those of us who have to follow his lead in death to self, but death nonetheless. Isn't it kind of encouraging to know that Jesus looked at death and said, Phew, my soul is troubled. When I look at dying to self, I think my soul is troubled sometimes. It's kind of like Jesus in Gethsemane when he prayed, Lord, if this cup could be taken from me, Father, but not my will, yours. I read this sometimes and I think like, does Jesus say 
what should I pray? Like, read that again. What should I say? What should I pray? Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray? Like, your translation is like, what should I say? Like, is that a, is that a prayer? Or is that kind of like the rhetorical question? Like, like you're going to think less of me as your pastor here, but I read this and I hear like a New Yorker Jesus. He's like, my soul's deeply troubled, but eh, what are you going to do? That's what I came here for. That's a terrible New York accent. Stop laughing at me, daughter. Um, I gave it my best shot. And if you're from New York, I apologize. Or is it really that prayer like at Gethsemane, like my soul is troubled. What can I say? God, would you, would, would you save me from this? But then quickly he recognizes and yields to his purpose. I know I've come for this hour. That's the very reason I came. Verse 28, you see that uh, he says, bring glory to your name. I came for this hour. Father, bring glory to your name. And that's when things get kind of fun. An audible voice. Only the third time in all of Scripture, that, in, the, in the Gospels, where we see, hear an audible voice of, from heaven. You guys remember what they are? Do you know what they are? Jesus' baptism, the transfiguration, and here. The audible voice says, you know, I have glorified myself, presumably Jesus' life and ministry by sending him, and then I will continue to glorify myself in Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, what's interesting is the people say, whoa, that was thunder, or oh, I, I think it was a voice, an angel spoke to him or something. Nobody really understood what was said except for Jesus, he understood the voice. But what's interesting is it says that the crowd didn't understand, but yet he looks at them and says, well, this is for your benefit. How can it be for their benefit if they don't understand? Presumably Jesus would have explained what it said, but what a comfort to those Christian disciples, followers of Jesus, who just a week later have watched Jesus arrested and crucified, that this perceived defeat was really victory that God was glorifying himself in what they had just witnessed. Because I'm sure it didn't feel like God was glorifying himself. And then in verse 31 through 33, he kind of unpacks the significance of, all, of this all. What does it mean that the time has come? It means that it's time for judgment for this world. The prince of this world will be driven out. Jesus will be lifted up, both on the cross and glorified that he will draw all men to himself. Now, that sounds like some sort of end time thing. Like, that's supposed to happen at the very, very end. Chronologically, yes, you're correct. But it's the cross and the resurrection that sets in motion the end. Because the victory is won up front with Jesus' death and resurrection. Once again, the crowd does not understand. And then we get to verse 37 and 50. Take a real quick look at that. Yours is probably set off. Because it's, it's a quotation, he, John refers to the prophet Isaiah and says, most of the people didn't believe Jesus. Remember, this book is about believing. Most of the people didn't believe Jesus, just like the prophet Isaiah said. And he quotes Isaiah and implies they just don't have eyes to see. But then in verse 42 through 43, he says, but some do. Let me read verse 42 through 43. Jesus shouted to the, oh, no, 42. 
Many people did believe in him, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Which brings us all the way back to loving this life. All the way back to refusing to die. Many Jewish leaders believed, but they they were afraid to say something because they loved praise of man. So people who believed still ran after the praise of man without trying to admit too much. I understand what that means. See, you and I, we find ourselves doing the same. The problem is we can't, at the same time, live for ourselves and live for God. We can't live for our own kingdom and live for his kingdom. We can't write our own rules and submit to his rules. We can't pride ourselves on our own righteousness, Christians, hear me, on how good we are doing, but yet cast ourselves on his righteousness. We can't live for our glory and his glory at the same time. We can't love the world with our heart, but love him above all else at the same time. We can't orient our world around me and yet orient our world around him. We can't sit on the throne of our hearts and have him sit on the throne. This whole idea of dying in life and how it kind of sounds unpalatable and how it sounds like, oh, that sounds so restrictive and it sounds very unappetizing and unappealing for those who are considering the faith. Let me give you the why behind the dying. Jesus calls you to die because you are in the way of you having life. Jesus calls you to die because you are in your own way to having life. You see, it's our pride, our rebellion, our independence, our foolishness, and our denial that stand in the way of his offer to us. We like our kingdom. We like our rules. We like our, we think we're smarter. We know better. We could say we know God is all-knowing and all-powerful, but yet on a day-to-day living out their life, we say we know better because we certainly act that way. We need someone to rescue us from our own delusion. Pastor and author uh, that I look up to, uh, he he wrote this. Grace is out to kill us. By presiding over our death, grace gives us life, real, abundant, and eternal life. Don't fight the death of your old life. Instead, celebrate the new life that is yours by grace and grace alone. And remember that your Savior will continue to call you to die. It is the way of life. Jesus calls you to die because you are in the way. 
So what do we do about that? If that's true, if I know that I'm in the way, and, and some of us know from experience, oh yeah, I know that I'm in the way. Jerome, you don't have to convince me. You don't have to pull, you don't have to like, you don't have to spend the last 20 minutes trying to convince me. I know that I'm in the way. And some of us don't. Some of us think we're not in the way, but some of us, we've been in this a while, we know. Let me give you a couple of things. First of all, I would use the word live dead. And if we thought about our life as we live, like we think of living dead as zombies. I'm not talking about me zombies. I'm saying live dead to self. And, and it's, it's a whole lot easier said than done because we're out there and we're reacting in the moment and what we feel and what we... A few months ago, we were talking about the church and we were in the series. We were all at home watching online, all of us, I'm sure. Uh, we were talking about difficult people and sometimes in the church that God puts them there and for our own growth and his glory. I introduced a, a, a life skill called crying to walk in the spirit, and I've introduced this a number of times, uh, and you'll hear me do it again. But cry stands for know, reckon, and yield. And we talked about in the, in the moment of temptation or in the moment of offense or in the moment, but in the moment when I know that I am living for me, which is a whole lot harder to know, there's a way that we can yield ourselves to his rule knows this, I am dead to that. Whether it's pornography, whether it's lust, whether it's jealousy, whether it's pride, whether it's holding a grudge, whether it's I wanna, I'm dead to that. That's my old life. Then reckon are, I'm alive in Christ. I no longer live but Christ, right? It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. I'm dead to that, I'm alive to Christ, and now I yield to his rule. I yield my body, I yield my will, I yield my anger, I yield my, my, my desire to him. Live dead. And then abide in Christ. This comes up a lot. As a matter of fact, when we finally get there, later in the book of John, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, kind of rest on this abiding idea for a long time because Jesus is about to go into it. See, we are made new when we put our life in his hands, but we're also in a process of growth. We need God's spirit to speak, to convince, and to guide us. We need God's word to feed our relationship with him, and we need God's people That's why we are making steps to continue to be the church despite restrictions. That's why we continue to open things up so we can be the church. I was just thinking about this when I was on the front during worship. I turned around and looked at all you and I thought, thank you God that these people are part of this church not because of me but because of each other. Because we make each other better because we are better together. Only these people in the front row are here because of me. We are natural born enemies that God brings us together for his glory, for his purpose. We love one each other for Christ's sake. And because of it, we grow in his image. Third thing I would say is embrace the grace that you've received. Man, be gospel fluent. The truth of the matter is we will fail. We will choose our kingdom over his. We will sit on the throne and kind of push him off the throne. And in those moments when you're made aware 
embrace grace. See, somehow, some way, I, I, in those moments where I was made aware that I have fallen short and failed, I always kind of beat myself up. Religion says, man, you have failed, beat yourself up, and try harder next time. But grace says, you have failed, and thank God he has not failed. Embrace the grace. And ironically, the thing that happens when we embrace grace, when we own up to our failure, when we own up to how we have fallen short, and we say, man, it makes what Christ has done far greater, and we treasure it, and we cherish it. And when we treasure and cherish what Christ has done, we find living for him a whole lot easier. It actually helps us to move forward. This message I know as I, as I bring it to a close has is, is been geared towards Christians. Um, but if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. We thank you that you've come and walked into this church. Um, I don't know what brought you here, but I'm convinced that God has a plan and purpose. Perhaps he's been stirring in your heart and you're like, I just need to go. The whole message of this Jesus is this, that we needed to, we had to, we were required to, but we could not. But somebody did in our place, on our behalf. Jesus lived a life that we could not live. And when you put your faith in him, his righteousness becomes our righteousness and we are made right with God in right legal standing and right relational standing. And then we are made new. Today, as we end this service, I'm gonna ask our ushers, or ushers, I'm gonna ask our ushers to stand back there and our elders to stand up here. But, but usher, if you are like stirred by the spirit, I'll let you come up. but I have elders who are here who will pray with you. Whether you have something else to pray about, our elders are available to pray with you, to hear you and lay hands on you and pray in the name of Jesus. But if you would say, Jerome, I, I think I finally believe. Praise the Lord. You're sitting right where you're at. But I'd, I'd invite you to come up and, and, and have a word of prayer with one of our elders. We would encourage you and help you on this walk with Christ. Let me close by reading you a very similar passage out of the Gospel of Luke. Very similar wording, maybe a little bit fuller. Different incident, different event, but same theme. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 25. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you yourself are lost or destroyed? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. What a privilege we have to gather in a place like this, to gather with brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors, those who have like us, we've, we've called upon you. And we gather here, Lord, because we need to meet with you so that we can continue to, to be who you've called us to be, to be who you've made us, everything you've made us. We thank you, Lord, that we there is indeed life through death. Help us, Lord.
May we abide with you. May we be empowered by your spirit. May we get out of our own way and find life in you. In Jesus' name, amen.